Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie, and welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. On today's episode, we're talking about the mental health of healthcare workers. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected the mental health and well-being of billions of people across the world, especially frontline healthcare workers. They've faced challenges such as increased workloads, scarce resources, and fears of exposure to the virus. Here with me today to guide us through this discussion is Dr. Don Richardson. He's a psychiatrist and physician lead at St. Joseph's Healthcare London's Operational Stress Injury Clinic at Parkwood Institute. He's also the scientific director of the McDonald Franklin OSI Research Centre and a fellow with the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health. Dr. Richardson is one of the foremost experts on military-related post-traumatic stress disorder with more than two decades of experience in the assessment and treatment of Canadian Armed Forces members and veterans. Dr. Richardson, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me briefly tee up our discussion, if I could, with just a quick reference to Two studies that I see here. First of all, StatsCan study of 18,000 healthcare workers conducted, I believe, in 2021 found that eight months into the global pandemic, one-third reported fair or poor mental health. 70% reported that their mental health was somewhat worse now or much worse now compared with before March 2020. 56% reported that most days were, quote, quite a bit stressful or extremely stressful. And seven out of 10 participants reported worsening mental health during the pandemic. Now, also a a study conducted at St. Joseph's McDonald Franklin OSI Research Center, where you serve as scientific director, the study on moral distress and mental health of Canadian healthcare workers found that many healthcare workers, perhaps no surprise, have been negatively impacted by the pandemic with conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder, stress, and depression. So maybe just how bad is it out there, Dr. Richardson, with from your, your studies and your research and what you're hearing? How bad is the mental health and well-being of our healthcare workers? Well, I think that's a very, very good question. And I think when we're doing these surveys, not only for the general Canadian population, but specifically for healthcare workers, what we're often measuring is distress, mm. which is a little bit different than when we're measuring whether somebody has a specific mental illness. And I think it's clear from some of the studies, both studies that we have done on a national scale on healthcare workers and those done on the general public is that the pandemic has impacted everyone, but especially so the the healthcare workers who have been kind of not only dealing with some of the stresses we all have experienced, 
but the added burden of you know, trying to deliver services, healthcare uh, services within within a system during a pandemic. Hmm. I mean, we always associate PTSD with with those who serve in the military. Are we seeing signs of that amongst our frontline healthcare workers? Uh, well, that's a, a really good question, specifically with regards to increased symptoms of PTSD. Hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're they have a diagnosis of PTSD, right? But the the pandemic, uh, uh, depending on wh what kind of work you were doing, might have uh, increased your risk of being exposed to significant traumatic events, and in that case, would definitely have an impact on on whether you have symptoms and then also whether you meet kind of the diagnosis of PTSD. Right. So what what are some of the symptoms that the medical workers are are facing? I'm sure what it would be well, stress and difficult sleeping and so on. Can you t walk us through some of the, the consequences that they were suffering from? Well, if we look at first of uh, symptoms, which are the most common symptoms of depression, mm -hmm. having low mood, problems concentrating, and as you mentioned already, a difficulty falling and staying asleep, and then also kind of lower self-esteem. And then some of the more concerning symptoms of, of depression is thoughts of suicide or thoughts of suicide and suicidal ideation and even, you know, thoughts of, of kind of going further towards that, towards those thoughts. Hmm. How does it, I'm sure that in the military, there's a reluctance to often admit to suffering from, from these, some of these things, depression and low self-esteem and so on. Is it the same with uh, healthcare workers? Is there a stigma or something? Been, yeah, I think the stigma of mental illness has probably not been as studied as well in healthcare workers, but some of the preliminary work and some of the studies have looked at that, the reluctance of individuals to seek treatment and the challenges in accessing care and so I think, uh, and it wouldn't be a surprise, is that uh, in most work settings, if somebody is off leave and nobody knows why they're off, then people start thinking it's probably mental health because if you're off because you broke your leg or you uh, had a heart attack, everybody knows about it because they're sending kind of, everybody gets a notice and people are sending cards and and get well kind of cards. However, if you're off leave and nobody knows the reason why, most likely people start thinking, well, it's either due to stress-related injuries. And I think the challenge is that coming back to work. And so there is evidence in workplace settings, especially in healthcare settings. I think that the stigma of mental illness and the stigma of ac accessing and seeking care is there. Hmm. And obviously this affects how someone can do their job, correct? I mean, even to the extent if they're not sleeping well, they're and the stress and so forth. And also, as you said, taking leave, there's fewer people at work to do the job. Are we also seeing, and we've heard, seen news reports of more and more people, and I think specifically nurses in some cases, now believing that they're going to leave the profession because of this? Are we seeing that? Well, that, that's, that's an area that is currently being examined, not only from our current study. So we have a longitudinal study that looks at uh, over the 18 months, are you considering leaving the profession? And some of the areas that we're looking at is 
what are those predictors that if somebody, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, that would predict those intentions to leave at the end of the study. So that's one area that we're particularly interested in. And as we know, across Canada, there has been a, a shortage of healthcare workers that is, that is problematic. And for those who are deciding to leave their profession, or if they have to be away because they're ill or to work-related stress, that in itself causes additional burden on those who are left behind to do the work. Mm-hmm. So for those individuals, they're now working harder and might have less individuals to do the same amount of work. So it compounds the potential kind of stressors within a, a workplace environment. And if you can also imagine those individuals who are taking the time to recover, the potential guilt that they might have hmm. in knowing that other people are, are doing kind of extra work. So that in itself is, can be quite, quite problematic in not only, you know, especially not only in healthcare workers, but in, in all work-related environments. Hmm. And do you think, well, we're all, we all listen to them, we watch the news and so forth. Do you think that the, the pandemic and the stress and the distress that's um, being experienced by healthcare workers is, I don't know if you can answer that, is that discouraging young people from entering the profession, do you think? I don't know. Um, we would have to look to see, and I, and I do agree, I think for young people, especially those who have transitioned from going to, from you know, high school to university and doing everything virtually, and if you're trying to decide if you're going to be a healthcare worker and initially where everything was done online, it might have had a negative impact. And I think some people might be de- trying to decide whether they want to go in such a stressful environment. I can say personally, I love my job. So hopefully there are many others that have that same attitude to encourage people to, in my case, would be a psychiatrist, but to go into the profession and, and opportunities to speak to, you know, nurses and, and, and other healthcare workers to, to get a different perspective. Hmm. And I understand you're, you're somewhat involved. Is that right? There's a program called the Road to Mental Readiness Program. Can you tell us something about that? So the R2MR program was a resiliency program that was initially developed by Department of National Defense to assist with improving not only mental health awareness and education, and also hopefully if they're exposed to traumatic events from kind of a military context, that they would be aware that they are having some symptoms and when they might need to access care. And the hope is that by having this type of information and basic skills on how to control kind of anxiety and that you might have is that in the long run, it might increase your kind of operational effectiveness. Hmm. And this, sorry, I should, this also, this center received 2.8 million in funding. Is that right? From, from the Public Health Agency of Canada to help adapt this, you call it the R to MR, the Road to Mental Readiness Program, which was created for the Canadian military and the Ontario Provincial Police. Yes, so correct. So we received funding to adapt this initial module that was created for military to adapt it for a healthcare environment. 
So in our multiple consultations that we had with organizations and healthcare workers, it was clear that we needed to have a consistent message that we're not blaming healthcare workers for their stress or, or distress that they're experiencing at the workplace. So we wanted to ensure that whatever was created in the end is not reinforcing this type of stigma. And one of the key messages that we want to have is that in the end, workplace health or workplace mental health is a not only individual responsibility, but it's also the responsibility of the organization and that both are, are critically important. So part of our initiative that we want to create is a framework and so that we can provide some support and direction, not only to the individual, but also to teams and organizations so that they can work together in order to enhance the overall well-being. So it's moving away from specific initiatives for individuals that are suffering to providing something that will provide support to everyone, because we come under the general premise that everyone during the pandemic is experiencing a level of stress to different mm -hmm. degrees and that everyone you know, deserves uh, better days at work. Hmm. And part of that, I assume, in addition to sort of a more formal, if, if I'm a healthcare worker and I'm feeling stressed, I guess what? I, I approach a superior or a manager, or do I go directly to, I try to contact someone? H how do I get the help that I might need? You know, that is so key. And, and how do we improve that communication so that if you do need support, how do you get it and how mm -hmm. do you get it timely? And uh, where are healthcare workers getting that information? So sometimes it might be directly through your leader, or it might be external resources that you have. And then one of the other challenges is that how do you know yourself that you might need some additional support, whether it's within a, a peer support program or initiative where individuals within different groups are supporting each other, or is it if you're not comfortable speaking to your leader, what are other avenues? So the framework that we want to present in, in the end is that with the concept that, you know, all doors are open. So regardless which door you open, you would be able to access information that can then lead to you meeting your needs rather than having just a few things where you can say, okay, this is not appropriate for you. So we want to make it easier, but we also want to ensure that whatever we create in the end is supporting some of the existing initiatives that have taken place within organizations so that we can better facilitate what is already there, but how do we improve the communication and the culture so that if you're, if you're struggling, that you can get the support that you need. And then the other message, how do you know that you're having some, some difficulties that it might be a time for you to, to seek help? I mean, w mental health programs and so on, that there's been a whole push, even the sort of TV commercials you see where it's important to ask questions, talk to people. I mean, how important of an aspect is that? Where just someone's coworker, if they notice that uh, a certain person is struggling, that they kind of make that overture and say, are you okay? Is that, is that part of it too? Yes, that would be part of it also. And I think that it's so important with what you're, you're stating is how do we care for each other? Hmm. So things that we might naturally do, 
how do we bring that same concept within the workplace? So if you know that your relative or your neighbor is struggling, we naturally will go and provide some support. But sometimes in a healthcare environment, we might forget kind of those simple measures that can make a big difference, as you just indicated. How are you doing? So we, <laughs> not everybody needs medication or psychotherapy to that extent, but they might need the support of a uh, ear, of a peer, or somebody that they can confide with or a colleague. And for those who do not have that within their work environment, where else can they receive it? So it's always the key message is that you're not alone to and are not responsible for your overall well-being. So what is it within the organization that we can facilitate this culture change of accessing, accessing care and supporting each other? And then what is it that you can do as an individual? So, I mean, if, if a coworker is in distress, what... Well, if, if a medical worker is in distress, what sort of behavior, what sort of symptoms might a coworker observe? Sometimes it might be very subtle. So many individuals might be exposed to moral distressing events or other stressful events at the workplace, and the symptoms might not uh, appear kind of initially. Sometimes it could take months, and for some people, it might take uh, years. And, and it's not unusual is that after you're no longer in that situation, that you start reflecting back on specific events that might have had an impact. So some of the symptoms might be very subtle in terms of disengagement, not disengagement in terms of being at work, less interested in, in being on the job, irritability that, is, that might not be there in, in the past wanting to be more by yourself and not engaged kind of in conversations. Those are more of the subtle things, so changes in, in the way you would normally know the person to more kind of severe symptoms of where you're having problems concentrating, you know, staying focused, uh, difficulty sleeping. And what we haven't touched upon, sometimes we get into self-medicating your symptoms challenges, you're having trouble sleeping or you're having problems uh, relaxing. So you resort to what's easily available, whether it's, you know, like alcohol would be the most common where there has been some work showing increased alcohol consumption. And is that becoming more problematic? So sometimes these are the subtle signs that, you know, you're in the past, you might only been drinking two to three times per week, but now you're drinking every evening. And instead of kind of one to two drinks, you're going two to three. Those are subtle things that over time might be signs that, that you're, you're struggling. And then the more kind of severe symptoms of those on the PTSD side is reliving the events, intrusive thoughts and recollections or disturbed dreams or nightmares, avoiding talking about the event uh, to either your partner or your peers. And then loss of interest in activities, a lot of the symptoms we see, kind of that emotional numbing that people, when you're kind of disengaged over time, and the arousal and reactivity symptoms like irritability, poor concentration, uh, insomnia, are some of the other symptoms that can occur that starts to look more like PTSD. And then low mood, becoming cheerful, and again, the common symptoms of problem sleep and concentration and thoughts of suicide 
or not wanting to live or on the symptom sides of depression. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a moral injury? I'm not familiar with that. Excellent question. When we think of moral injury, it's important to actually look at it from a continuum from moral distress to moral injury. For whenever we, we talk about moral distress or moral distressing events, these are events that goes against your own moral code. And it can vary from my lesser kind of severity in terms that during the pandemic, there might have been regulations that you had to decrease the amount of care you provide based on the number of patients that could be seen during a day. That might have caused you some distress because you might have said, well, actually, all of these individuals are deserving of care, but now I have to see less people. And if you can imagine, if you're working at cancer care, that would create a lot of distress. And if you are a psychiatrist, you might have been told you, you can only see these individuals once a month when they might have been needed to be seen maybe every two weeks or every week. We can then go to a much larger continuum there at the beginning where there was a shortage of PPE. That might have caused some significant distress. And then also some mistrust on the organization, a sense of betrayal that the organization was not providing you with what you needed to do your work in a safe manner. Mm. That's a higher level of moral distress. Then there might have been where you might have had to make decisions on whether somebody can get access to a ventilator. That might have been very, very distressing if you can imagine for many healthcare workers making that choice. And all of those different errors are morally distressing events. If when we say morally injured is that over time, if those events are impacting you, affecting your functioning, or you're left with significant guilt or kind of always thinking about it, then we kind of go into the area that this has started a new kind of severity to moral injury. So we always go from, there are many morally distressing events people that can experience, especially in, in the healthcare area. And some of these events could accumulate to be moral injuries, so moral injury, hmm. or there could be one very, very large event or a very significant event that has continued to to affect your overall kind of functioning. And then that's when we say that, you know, this is a moral injury. Right. And what are some of the tools that you would provide a worker to help cope with the distress that they're experiencing? If we're looking at, um, you know, specific tools or modules that an individual might be able to use, we want to always make sure that we're not reinforcing the message that you're responsible for this. But there are simple things that are used in general public health is general coping strategies, how to better manage uh, problems with sleep. How do you learn to control what you can control within your own environment? All of those small little things can provide some assistance. You might have heard all kinds of initiatives that are already out in terms of breathing, exercising, mm -hmm. mindfulness. There has been a lot of initiatives that have been so focused on the individual, but sometimes what's missing is the balance of what the organization can also do. 
and sometimes getting the message from your leaders and organization that, yes, we care about your health and reinforcing that message and also that same message being consistent. This is what you can do if you're struggling. That in itself can have uh, a large impact. Right. And, and perhaps I don't want to paint an overly negative picture, I'm sure, and perhaps you can speak to this, that there are many, many, many healthcare workers who are coping well. Is that, is that fair to say? I would say most people are coping relatively well. There are mm -hmm. many who are struggling. And in some of these larger surveys is to remind that it's actually a measurement of distress. But we also want to emphasize many have been severely impacted and how can we best support those individuals is key. Are you optimistic that the medical community can sort of surmount this problem and deal with this problem of stress and distress amongst healthcare workers? So I'm, I'm generally optimistic that we will be able to help. And the fact that you, you are coming to me today asking about these questions is already showing that there's an interest and a need that, that in the past, I think, questions about healthcare workers, whether that they had depression, moral distress and moral injury, you know, PTSD and were probably not common, but I'll, but I would say in the, since the pandemic, there's been a lot of stuff, both in the media, social media, where this has been highlighted. So I think these are all positive things to bring kind of mental illness more into the forefront. And I think that's, that's been very a very effective anti-stigma campaign in itself. Right. If someone is suffering from PTSD or something, I mean, is that a, that's not a curable condition, is it? Or is it? Or is it a more of a, a weaning off or a gradually decreasing sort of sense of distress? Is it something that can be solved? That's a really good question with regards to, is it a cure hmm. or are you managing your symptoms? In my experience, I've seen many people who have had quite severe symptoms of PTSD and depression and fully recover and where they're actually functioning well. And many people who have PTSD or depression are working full time in all kinds of healthcare workers or other type of professions. But that does not mean that traumatic events are erased. You're always going to remember that part of that experience with very painful emotions. But that's different than if you're with regards to functioning, because when we talk about symptoms of PTSD, they're all normal symptoms after a traumatic event. It's whether those symptoms persist over time and you have difficulty functioning, which really mm -hmm. defines that whether or not it's a disorder. Another area that we haven't explored is uh, the pandemic has also forced innovation in healthcare. So in the past, I did virtual care through Ontario Telemedicine Network, OTN, but it was rare. It was a very small part of my work. However, I think the pandemic has made this very, very commonplace in terms that we have individuals that can access care without driving paying for parking and waiting into the waiting room. And I think it's really opened up accessing care, especially for mental health, where you, know, you might not need to be there in person. And I would argue that would be the same in our, for our healthcare workers. Accessing care is a little bit easier because you could theoretically take a break at work 
and access your care for support for mental health, while in the past, there might have been stigma in you leaving, uh, parking, going into, if you were coming to see a psychiatrist, going into a mental health area. Now you can do it uh, you know, more privately without that type of stigma that you might have had before. So I think those are some of the positive innovations, I think, that was forced upon all of healthcare. And if we look at the veteran side, about 70% said they would prefer virtual care if it was offered even post-pandemic, if we ever get there. So even now, we do see patients, veterans in person. Many are choosing to, to do it virtually because it's easier. And, and the research is showing is that it's just as effective in most cases. Right. Okay. Well... It's a very um, important topic, absolutely. And of course, it affects not only how the care that we're given, but the number of people who are there to care for us and those entering the profession as we touched on. Thank you, Dr. Richardson, for shedding some light on this. Thank you so much for the invitation. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. <laughs>